and quite challenging is his adjustment to fame. He's had a very difficult time going out in public without being essentially mobbed by fans and others who just want to be near him and talk to him. And you think, oh, poor guy, you know, if I could only have such sufferings. But if you think about it, he has no privacy. Demands on him are overwhelming and constant. His life in many ways are not his own when he gets outside of his schedule and with the people that he's chosen to be with. His solution has to become someone who stays at home much of the time and just continue to go about his own priorities and mind his own business. If he does go out to a restaurant, for instance, he has to sneak in a side door or a back door and then sneak out again. And the point here is that access to someone famous like Tom Brady is quite restricted because he's so famous, because he's so prominent in our national consciousness. Now, is our God at all like this? Certainly, he's far, far more significant and important than a sports figure or some famous human being. Everyone wants his time. And attention. So is he accessible? Is he available to us? Sometimes it does seem like God is very distant, doesn't it? But is he? Now we don't know for certain all the circumstances that those in this book to whom the book is written were facing. But we have some clues based on what the author wrote to them. What he highlights in his book. The author is intent on helping them understand who Jesus is and why he's worth following. Like Christians in every age, these believers are wondering if faith in him is really worth it. Everyone around seems to think that Jesus is not that big of a deal. So why be so fanatical about it? Why should we place our confidence in him? Isn't faith really for the weak-minded? Isn't this idea of one way just out of touch, unreasonable, unscientific even, we're told today? How do we answer these kind of objections from the world? How do we answer our own doubts fueled by the evil one? How would the author of Hebrews encourage us to persevere? He spends his time demonstrating that Jesus Christ is completely sufficient for this life and for the next. Jesus, he argues, is the only way to God. And his focus for these Jewish believers is that the old way, the old system of approaching God is done. It's over. It was incomplete without him. And the author says over and over again then in application that we are to draw near to this God through Jesus. Listen to just a few of the passages. We read one of them already. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God bids us to come. Hebrews 7.25, he, Jesus Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. 
through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, who pursue him again and again. Do you see God's intention for you? He sent his only beloved son as your sacrifice and as your priest so that through the person of work of Jesus Christ, we might draw near to him. He does all of this for his own glory and for our joy. And note very carefully as we begin, he does not have to do this. He doesn't owe us this work. He doesn't need us. And if we refuse to draw closer to him, he is not impoverished in himself in any way. He does not need us. We don't say that to say that God's distant from us, but to show what kind of a God he is. He's magnified his mercy by providing us free access through Jesus. Look at the lengths to which God goes to give you access. A person like Tom Brady, who's famous, is pushing away access. He can't handle it. But the God of heaven says, come, draw near. In spite of our sin, in spite of our unfaithfulness, in spite of our unworthiness, he gives us the one true thing that can provide eternal life and eternal joy. He provides himself. One pastor summarizes this exhortation this way. The great aim of the author of Hebrews is that we draw near to God. That we have fellowship with him. That we not settle for a Christian life at a distance from God. That God not be a distant thought or an afterthought. But a near and present reality. That we experience communion with our God. Our text this morning affirms that through the work of Jesus Christ, believers have complete, unhindered, full access to God himself. Let's look at our text. We'll begin reading in verse 19. This is the word of our Lord. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his own flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's the conclusion. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's ask for his help to appreciate this text, to adore our Christ together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it reveals to us our need. How it reveals to us the answer to our dilemmas, our doubts, our fears, our sin, our guilt, our shame. Father, thank you for its ability to reveal to us the answer, Jesus Christ. Lord, grow our desire for him through this text this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And the author of Hebrews has spent chapters 1 through 10 teaching about the superiority of Jesus Christ. It has primarily been doctrinal in nature. In chapters 1 through 4, he's demonstrated that Christ is superior to all in his person. He compares him to Moses, 
to angels, to the priesthood. And he says, Christ is better. From chapters 5 through chapter 10, verse 18, through the end of what we've just seen. He's emphasizing that Jesus is superior to all in his priesthood, in the law, in that Old Testament system. And now the author is beginning to apply these lessons to God's people. To help them to persevere, to continue on, to grow in their faith. Jesus is all of these things for us in order to bring us to God. Because we have full access directly to God himself, the author of Hebrews urges us to draw near to God. Can you see that this is the author's passionate desire for us? Look again at verse 22. Take careful note of the command there. There will be three of these commands. Let us, in the next few verses... We're dealing with just the uh, first one. He says, let us draw near. The central point of these verses, perhaps even the main exhortation throughout this book, is that we would draw near to God through Jesus Christ. The passage this morning then compels us to come. First, we're given two reasons why we should draw near. And then in verse 22, we're told how we're to draw near. So first, draw near because Christ is has opened the way. Hebrews makes the case again and again that nothing is truly sufficient to bring us to God but Jesus Christ. He's arguing that that is the great need of mankind. It's not a better economy. It's not better world leaders. It's not a richer family life. It's that you need to be rightly related to God. All of those things will be dramatically affected by that one issue. That's the heartbeat of God, that you be rightly related to him. And he says, nothing is truly sufficient. Look back at the beginning of chapter 10. I'm going to skip through several verses through 18, and you just follow with me. We'll read verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never By the same sacrifices that are offered continually every year over and over again. Look at the end of verse 1. Make perfect or whole or righteous those who draw near. He's saying the law is not able to get you to God. Verse 2. Otherwise would they have not ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? saying they're offered again and again because they didn't fully deal with sin. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Skip down to verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices. This is God's not desiring or taking pleasure in them. And offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. That wasn't God's desire ultimately. This was always a temporary system. Go down to verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. And notice very carefully how clear the author is, which can never take away sins. Let's skip forward to verse 14. But now, for by a single offering, he has perfected, completed for all times those who are being 
sanctified. In one sacrifice, he did what all the Old Testament law could not. He's made you, if you're in him, perfectly sanctified or holy or acceptable to God. Let's go down to verse 17. Then he adds, this is God speaking in the new covenant promises. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more because they're covered by that sacrifice. And verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these sins and these deeds, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is astounding. These sacrifices have been offered year after year after year for hundreds of years. And in one moment of time, the final sacrifice does away with it all. We're to draw near to God because Jesus Christ opened the way. If this Old Testament sacrificial system was so ineffective, what's the point of it? Why did God command his people to do this over and over and over? Even daily, he mentions. It demonstrated at least three truths that we need to know about God. First, it demonstrated the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. Sin is devastating. It causes death. God has to be separated from sin. That's part of the point of these sacrifices. Because of our sinfulness, no man can enter into the presence of God on his own merits. We should see that system and say, God is holy. I don't belong in his presence. How could I ever be right with him? Second, it demonstrated God's long-suffering and mercy. That he is a long-suffering and merciful God. It showed that even though mankind is sinful, he provided a way for them to come to him. He isn't a God who wants to push away those who've rebelled against him. He sought to find a way to bring them near, even though this way is temporary and incomplete. Third and finally, the Old Testament law and sacrificial system was intended to point at the final sacrifice, at the final priest. It's a living picture that God was playing out before his people throughout all that time. It was to give them a longing for the Messiah he had promised. It was to say, here he comes. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those sacrifices were insufficient to truly remove sin, to truly appease God's wrath. The God of the Old Testament is a God of patience and long-suffering. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. Even the priests are unable to fully and finally mediate between God and man. Therefore, we begin verse 19. Therefore, because of all that Christ has accomplished for us, we can draw near. So God says, come. The word confidence in verse 19 is important. It can be translated as freedom, permission, or authorization. Every believer has the authorization, the word from the man himself to come, to enter his presence. There's freedom. This is the primary way that the author of Hebrews is encouraging this congregation of believers. Come with your heartaches and your burdens and your doubts. Go to this high priest who intercedes for you at all times. 
Christians approach God confidently, completely at home in the situation created by Christ's work. Now, do you see the contrast that the author is making between the restricted access? That's a big point of contrast. There's restricted access here in the old system. There's complete access in the new. Unhindered, open access. In the Old Testament system, neither an individual Israelite nor the congregation as a whole was ever in their entire lives invited into the presence of God. Only one day a year, the Day of Atonement, was the high priest allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies after basically swimming in blood of sacrifices. Can you imagine how difficult this instruction is for Jews who are now believing in Christ? They didn't believe this was possible. This is incredible news to them. The basis of our confidence to approach our God has nothing to do with our ability to obey him. Do you see that? We come to him only, only ever through Christ. You don't belong in his presence, but through Christ you can come. As a congregation, we sing and affirm the lyrics to the hymn, Not in Me. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, No tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him and he alone gives me rest. He alone. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce writes in the death of Jesus We're to understand that God himself is unveiled to us. And the way of access to him is thrown open wide. Francis Schaeffer wrote the central message of Christianity. The very heart is the possibility of men and women approaching God himself, the Holy One, the Supreme One, through Jesus Christ. The way to God, the author writes, is both new and living. And that Jesus has fulfilled and completed the picture and requirements of that Old Testament system. That way is done with. There's a new way. It's through Jesus now alone. He's the door. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No more sacrifices are needed. No longer a need for a human high priest. It's a living way because he's alive. It continues because he's victorious over death and sin. There will be no more death in the tabernacle. No more blood spilled in the temple. That way has been fulfilled forever because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He opened for us the curtain, that veil that separated the priest and the people from the holy of holies. We're told in the gospels that when Jesus died, that curtain was torn from top to bottom because we are told we can enter now the holy of holies through his body through his flesh through his sacrifice first peter three eighteen says for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous one for the unrighteous so that he might bring us into fellowship with god do you see what you have in jesus christ second we're to draw near because christ is our high priest 
This is a picture the author of Hebrews has been wanting us to see very clearly. He's the supreme high priest because his position as the son of God. He's uniquely equipped, capable, sufficient to meet the demands. In what ways is this title, high priest, significant? He's perfectly righteous and therefore the only human being in all of history that's capable of interceding for his people. He's also the supreme high priest because his sacrifice accomplished what no other priest could. They had to keep going back again and again and again for cleansing from sin. He's done. It is finished. Full and final atonement has been paid. And he then is the head of the church over the house of God. That reference there to the house of God is telling us that God does not dwell in temple or tabernacle made with human hands, but now in the hearts of his people. We, we are his temple. That's an incredible picture. A picture of honor. A picture that gives us great sobriety to see that we are his building. Individually, but in an even greater sense, corporately, We are the temple of the living God because Christ is the head of the church and his spirit, his Holy Spirit dwells within us. We're to live new and holy lives. You have a mark that you're his. That must shape the way that we live. And this is to encourage us as well. We have a savior, a priest who intercedes for us, who guides and directs his church, who promises to build his church. That's us. This means for each of us, we always have access to pour out our heart to God. He knows us. We're his. He's investing in us, the church, who will go into eternity. There's nothing more important to him. And there's always more grace in him than the sins we bring. When we're wearied by this life, we're to see his sacrifice. We're to see him operating as our priest, calling and inviting us to come to him. For those whose conscience is crying out with true guilt, there is forgiveness with this priest if we will repent and turn from sin. Third, we're told to draw near with confidence in his ongoing work. Because of who Christ is and what he has done, the application the author gives is that we, his people, must draw near continually. That idea, draw near, means come again and again and keep coming. Don't forsake this way. He provides for us four ways as to how we're to draw near. He says first, with a true heart means we're to come to him with a heart that shows evidence of complete trust and devotion, undivided in allegiance. means we don't come to him haphazardly or casually. There should be no hypocrisy or just putting on a good front, a face for others. We come with sobriety and reverent awe. So the question is, do you take worship both individually and corporately seriously? Do you see what he did to bring you near? How can we walk into this room or open our Bibles or pray to a God and act like it's nothing? Like it means very little. How can we take that access for granted? And yet we do. 
again and again? Do you come before him without thinking, without understanding the cost it was to bring you into his presence? Do you come only because it is a habit, because it is expected of you, or because you don't want to offend a loved one? The passage is telling us, be reminded of the cost paid to make this invitation this morning in this service to draw near available. Come with joy and gratitude, but come with biblical clarity and reverence. Now, this doesn't mean at all that we're perfect without sin or beyond temptation, that when we come with cleansed hearts, that means we have cleaned ourselves up. That's not it at all. Rather than being enslaved to sin, we have become obedient to God from the heart. That's what the reference there in verses 16 and 17 to that new heart means. That means our ultimate desire is for God. That we hate sin. That when we recognize we have sinned again, we run from it. We rejoice that we have the opportunity to repent and turn to Him again. The overall direction of our lives is toward godliness. Does that describe you? Does it describe your heart? John Owen points out, without this sincerity of heart, there can be neither boldness nor confidence in our access to God. Maybe you're struggling with a lack of assurance. Is it possible that you don't have this new heart? That you don't understand his sacrifice? You've never turned from your sins and trusted in him? Second, we're to draw near in full assurance of faith. Hebrews eleven six 6 again tells us, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So how are we to draw near? With a resolved conviction or certainty of faith that continues to be generated in believers. We're to find the opportunity to worship more and more and more gratifying. As we grow in our faith in Jesus Christ, as we recognize what he's done for us in the gospel, it becomes more and more precious to it. We become less and less flippant. We stop thinking of this day as just a day on the calendar where this is what we do. It means something to us. Faith is both a gift from God and our responsibility to feed and grow. It's not a mindless leap in the dark. It rests upon the person of Christ and it continues to grow through the ordinary, simple means that God's provided. The better we know him as revealed in the word, the more we trust him and it builds on top of itself. The more we trust him in the difficulties of life, the more we see his faithfulness and are able to trust him again in the future. So we're built up as we take one step of faith and then the next. Third, we're to come with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Here again, we're pointed back to the picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system. When Aaron and his sons were first dedicated to serve God as their priests back in Exodus, they were first sprinkled with blood. And then they were washed with very clean water. The picture God was painting was again that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or cleansing from sin. Even the priests were not without sin. Even they needed this cleansing. They're not worthy to enter into God's holy presence on their own. God was making a gracious 
merciful concession, waiting for the sacrifice. He provided this way to symbolically make them clean. So we too must continually come back to the work of Christ for cleansing. If we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just to cleanse us from our sins, to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, Christians Christians are to be a repenting people, humbled by their sin, but grateful for forgiveness and the cleansing offered through Christ. The last phrase, with a washed body. The final phrase tell us that we're to draw near with our bodies washed with pure water. Certainly this description is closely tied to the previous one of of making the priests clean and worthy. But there's also likely a connection here to our baptism. This is the outward side of that sign of that inward change that God has accomplished within baptized believers. That's what we're picturing. Our passage is teaching us because that we have complete access to God through Christ, we're compelled to draw near. He urges us to come. Both the Old and the New Testament tells us that man's responsibility is to love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus says this is the greatest commandment. God wants us to desire him, to desire to be with him, to long to fellowship with him. Is that your heart's desire? Is that your heart's yearning? He alone offers to satisfy your soul. Just recently, I was watching a documentary about the life of one of the most accomplished and famous men in the music field. He's worked with some of the greatest musicians, artists alive, and near the end of the documentary, his wife said that she has never seen someone so obsessed with trying to outrun his mortality. His daughter said of him that he never stops moving because essentially he's afraid of what he'll find out about himself if he does. She said he's afraid of being quiet and still. And even he admitted that in spite of all of his success, the incredible projects that he's still pursuing, he is bored with life. He said it several times. I'm bored with this. He hasn't found true satisfaction in spite of his fame, in spite of his wealth, in spite of his accomplishments, in spite of his notoriety. And he knows his time is running out. For what in this life are you yearning? What will satisfy your soul's needs? A bigger house? A nicer car? That right someone? A perfect family? What are your energies and efforts being drawn? By your actions, what do you believe you want and need most? In Exodus 33, Moses begged to be able to just have a glimpse of God in his glory. Listen to his words. He cries out to God, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. May we ask God to stir up such a desire in our hearts today. Ask him to stir it up for us as a body. Let us draw near. The author of Hebrews is telling us to pursue 
the privilege that we have because of the work of Christ. Do you hear this as God's gracious and loving call to come to him? He desires to meet with you, with us. Why? What is man that you are mindful of us? He continues to desire a relationship with you. And this passage tells you there's absolutely nothing hindering you from unfettered fellowship other than your own priorities and your own choices. You can be as close to God as you desire to be. That's what this is telling us. Christ has unbarred the door. He's taken away every obstacle. He sufficiently met every criterion for his people to come and he urges us to come. Do you see God's heart for his people? Can you see how Christ's work, his obedience and sacrifice for you should compel us toward this kind of a relationship? Now, as we've worked through this passage, have you wondered why the author has to command us to come? If God through Christ has granted his people access like this, then why do we have to be compelled, commanded to draw near? Shouldn't we be eager and grateful for this incredible privilege? This should cause us to pause and consider why we personally don't value this privilege more. What is it that's blinding us to what God is offering? Perhaps just like Adam and Eve in the garden, we don't draw near because of our guilt. We know in our own sinfulness we don't belong in his presence. We are not worthy to be there. Perhaps we're simply taking it for granted and haven't truly spent much time meditating on what it means to be united to Christ in this way, to have this kind of access. He shed his blood so that you could be in communion with his Father, just as he is. We follow him into the presence of his Father. He tore down that curtain so that we're welcomed into his throne room, into the Holy of Holies at any time, not just one day a year. Our ever-living high priest whose sacrifice and intercession continues in order that we will always be welcomed in his Father's presence compels us then to draw near. Just last night, one of my children got cut using a sharp object to open a package. It was pretty painful, and there were even a few tears. And in the pain and need, my child came to me seeking for help and for comfort. Both Jenny and I took a few moments to bandage his hand and solve the problem and even more offer comfort. This command to draw near is the call of a loving father that compels you to come. Not just when you're hurt or afraid or in trouble, but daily, even moment by moment. As a parent, as a father, I always want my children to believe and feel like they can approach me. And sometimes I don't very, do a very good job of letting that be known. But I'll even work to communicate and encourage them to come. And that's what your heavenly father is doing in this word. The high priest is sufficient. God's justice is satisfied. And you are his child. So come. Draw near. You don't have a personal relationship with this God. That's what you're to hear this morning. 
He's offering for you to come and receive salvation and access through Jesus Christ. When we are busy and preoccupied with things that we have to get done, it's very easy for us to ignore or push others away in our desire to accomplish those goals. Just think of that famous person that you would want to spend a day with. Would that ever be possible? Do you have access? Does that person have time for you? Would you enter their presence with confidence that they're eager to spend a whole day with you? The God of heaven tells you he will. He's eager for it. He's urging you to come. He doesn't have to be asked for appointment. He's not too busy to meet with you. Instead, he urges us as his people to draw near and keep coming. Let's thank him now for this incredible invitation. Our gracious God in heaven, we rejoice that your word again reveals your heart for your people. It tells us of your love. It shows us what you have done to prove your love. Father, we rejoice in the great news of the gospel again. Our Christ spilled his blood so that we may have access. He spilled his blood even knowing that we would be unfaithful. That we would ignore this invitation. That we would demean it and diminish it. And find other foolish things more pleasing or satisfying in the moment. And yet you bid us come. Father, we're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for this invitation. We're humbled by it. And now we ask that you would grow our desire to walk with you. Lord, feed our faith. Help it to grow. Feed it even now as we come and celebrate the Lord's table and rejoice again in your provision for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.